John chapter 19, we're going to start reading in verse 17, and I'm going to read through 37. We'll save the burial account, which John does something unique with as well for next week. So John chapter 19, starting in verse 17. This is immediately following that conversation with Pilate. We read, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There, They crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to to his mother, Woman, behold your son. When he said, then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, that's the celebration of Passover that's coming, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it also has bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, and not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture saying, they will look on him whom they have pierced. We'll pause there for today. It's worth us taking a moment to talk briefly about this event of crucifixion itself. I imagine many of you have probably heard sermons or read books where they go through the details of what death by crucifixion would have entailed. It's interesting, John, nor most of the other Gospels, feel the need to give us grand, detailed explanations of what crucifixion was. John narrates it simply by saying they crucified him. 
The reason being that most in the first century probably knew all of the horrific details of what a crucifixion would have been. They had most likely witnessed them, seeing these political signs, this use of crucifixion as a communication, a message to the population. Oftentimes these crucifixions took place, even as we read about here, outside of the city where those traveling the roads coming in and out would have seen them. Imagine driving down 65 on your way to work each morning and seeing the Roman crucifixions taking place on the hillside as a piece of propaganda to remind you of who is in charge and the power that they have. It's enough for John to say they crucified him and for all of John's audience to have understood exactly what that would have meant and the image entailed. There were various configurations for crosses. Um, Some were in like the traditional shape of the cross that we associate with the event. Sometimes they were taken uh, to crosses that looked more like T's, sometimes X's, but all of them functioned in the same basic way. The whole idea of crucifixion was to expose a person to the elements, and usually, having already suffered a beating, a form of lashings, they left him exposed to succumb to exhaustion within the elements. They would hang a person by their wrists and feet, sometimes tying them with ropes, sometimes nailing them, as we read in the other Gospels. And eventually that person, in order to breathe, would have had to have raised their body up to fight for breath as they hung. He would have had to push against those nails in his hand and feet, would have had to have dragged his torn back against the beam itself. And it wasn't uncommon for people to experience this kind of crucifixion exposure for days at a time. There wasn't something about crucifixion that would immediately kill a person. The whole point was to prolong the suffering as a sign. And so oftentimes, people would go on like this for days. Eventually, the way that you would die from crucifixion is that your body would wear down from the elements and the pain, the days, that eventually a person would slowly suffocate as they no longer possessed the energy or the stamina to press against the nails and lift their body one more time for another breath. They would eventually lose the energy to breathe and so suffocate. As it was on Passover, the day before, this preparation for this high Sabbath day, we read that the Jews petitioned Rome to speed things up. That's what's going on when we hear this request that their legs be broken. One way to expedite the whole situation is by breaking the person's legs so they don't have the strength to press, lift their body up, and take a breath. With broken legs, death and suffocation would have come much more quickly. And so to speed it up and make sure that these criminals are executed before the Sabbath, that their bodies can be removed, they can be buried, so that that work is not done on a Sabbath, a holiday, they ask that the men's legs be broken to expedite the situation. Now, all of this was supposed to be excruciating. I've given you a small glimpse. Many of you have probably heard many more details. There's great books being, have been written on all of the details of crucifixion. And surely a big part of it was the pain and suffering. But really that pain and suffering was also about a kind of public message. This was a public form of execution, not simply a means of putting someone to death, but putting them on display as you put them to death. As much as it was about pain, it was also about a public humiliation, sending a message to the population. Look at how humiliated and shame-filled this person was, oftentimes stripped naked and exposed on the cross. Pilate decides to exacerbate this whole mockery by placing a plaque on Jesus' cross, which reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He does so by writing that inscription in Aramaic, in Greek, in Latin. 
In other words, in all of the languages that might have been spoken, Aramaic being one of the common commercial languages alongside Hebrew in Israel. It was the same title, King of the Jews, that had stirred up the Jewish crowds just before. That same title that Pilate had used to jab at them and mock Jesus before the crowds. Shall I crucify your king, the king of the Jews, he had said. Pilate now uses the sign to continue that mockery. And the Jewish leaders protest, asking that the charge not read king of the Jews, but claimed to be king of the Jews. I think John sees a great irony going on as these two groups, Pilate and the Jewish leaders, continue their bickering and arguing back and forth about charges and the reality of what actually was put on Jesus's cross. To Rome, to Pilate, to the soldiers who probably carved it into wood and nailed it to the beam, It was a joke. This naked, suffering, humiliated Galilean was the best of the Jews, the representative of the Jews, the king of the Jews, they must have laughed. But yet he was so easily beaten by Rome. The king of the Jews had nothing over the power of Rome. That's the joke, the way of mocking, the symbol of his defeat. The Jews are rightfully outraged by it, not necessarily because of Jesus, but because of the way it reflected on them that the Romans are joking as if this is their king. And they're desperate to distance themselves, letting everyone know he doesn't represent us. They couldn't stand the thought of this man representing them, of them being the, the end of the joke because of him. He claimed to be king of the Jews, they want the sign change to read. They did everything they could to distance themselves from Jesus, to distance themselves from this humiliation, to deny Jesus in any association with him as a representative of them. For Rome, Jesus on the cross is a symbol of his defeat, of their power, of Rome's power over Jews and everyone else for that matter. For the Jews, Jesus' crucifixion was a symbol of denial. We want nothing to do with him. He's not our king, not our representative. Rome had conquered Israel's king, and his own people denied that he was king at all. The irony, of course, for John, who's recording this, is that it's actually true. The cross itself, the very means that they think proves their power, proves their denial, for John proves the truth, is the sign of the truth. And in a kind of ironic prophecy, if you think about it, Pilate becomes the first person in history to declare to the world the true identity of the man who hangs on the cross— in Aramaic, in Greek, in Latin? Was it not this very message that Jesus' disciples would take up and proclaim in those same places? Jesus is king, preached in Israel, probably many sermons in Aramaic, taken by Paul and others on to the land of Greece, preached in Greek, and on to Rome itself, probably preached by Paul, perhaps even in Latin. This sign that Pilate hangs, denial, defeat turns out to be true. It turns out for Pilate to be the first to proclaim it in those languages to the world. How ironic. John recognizes it. 
He also recognizes that this irony plays out across all of the details of Jesus' crucifixion as well. What John really does is highlight each of the ways, the details that he pulls out from the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, which there's many more details the other gospel writers give us. But John seems to highlight the specific details that fulfill Scripture. If you listen carefully or reread it, John says this over and over. This happened to fulfill the Scriptures. This happened so that the Scriptures might be true. John recognized how the Roman soldiers did not rip Jesus's tunic and instead cast lots for it. And immediately he remembered Psalm 22, 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. John recognized that what was happening, that he was witnessing himself, was exactly what scripture had said. Or he heard Jesus speak of his thirst and the way that sour wine was lifted up to him. And immediately he thought of Psalm 69, 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. He heard how they didn't have to break Jesus's bones because Jesus had already died. And he remembered that it was Passover and that Passover had that great Passover sacrifice in which Exodus 12, 46 had commanded, do not break any of its bones. And he remembered the way that John the Baptist had pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and connected that Passover sacrifice happening all over Jerusalem with this, the sacrifice on the cross whose bones were also not broken. He watched as they pierced Jesus' side and he remembered Zechariah 12.10. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for only for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. John saw all of these details and all of the scriptures that they fulfilled, and he came to the realization that though the sign may mock Jesus, his defeat, and though the crowd around rejected him in denial, Jesus, by this very death on the cross, was fulfilling all that scripture had anticipated was fulfilling exactly what he himself had predicted, that the cross was true, the truth of what he had been saying and what scripture had been anticipating exactly as it had been predicted. Or as when Jesus himself had said to the disciples, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. What a realization for John to have recognized that this was not the moment of denial or defeat, but this was the moment in which everything God had anticipated and predicted was revealed to the world to be true. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was the Passover sacrifice that Scripture for so long had anticipated. Jesus was the Savior of the world. But there's more. Truth. But John carefully shows us at the beginning, the middle, and the end of this event just how much Jesus remained in control even as he was being executed. John emphasizes it. In the Greek, it's emphatic. He says something uh, the sentence doesn't require. There's an extra phrase he inserts to make sure we understand that Jesus carried his own cross. In Greek, you could just say Jesus carried his cross and get the his part as a part of the language. But John explicitly tells us he carried his own cross. Now, the other gospel traditions remember that there was one who helped him. You might remember from Matthew's account that there's one from the crowd that's pulled out to help carry the cross. Both are probably true. It is probably true that Jesus carried it for a ways and then succumbing to the difficult beating that he had just endured. Another helped him up to that place. But John wants us to focus on this image, 
to have this image in our minds of Jesus with his cross on his shoulders, bearing it himself under his own power, his own feet, moving toward the cross with the cross on his shoulder. John also highlights that image at the end, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The final word that John records of Jesus in this moment of death is his giving of his own life, his giving of his spirit. That's the image that John wants you to hold on to from the beginning of this scene to the end. He bears his cross. He gives up his spirit. Surrounding Jesus were men who imagined themselves as the ones in power, the ones taking the action, the ones executing orders and carrying out execution. Their leaders and rulers, men with spears in their hands and hammers in their hands, crowds chanting and taunting. And all of this appears to be done to Jesus. Jesus is beaten. Jesus is stripped. Jesus is nailed and crucified, pierced in the side. But John won't allow us to simply imagine that all of this is being done to Jesus with some idea of sympathy, how sad it is that they could do this to that Savior, the one of truth. John wants us to recognize that even in death, Christ bears control, bears his cross, gives his life. Perhaps the most moving scene of this is in the center of the passage, when Jesus gives his mother to who is probably John himself, the disciple. John, you might recognize from the passage, hints at the fact that all of this is based on his testimony. I'm telling you this because I saw it so that you can believe, John writes in the middle of this section, that this disciple standing there witnessing these things is John himself who's now recording it. And we learn that he wasn't the only one. There were several of Jesus's followers. He specifically gives us the names of a list of women, which I think is interesting, where are all the other disciples, but Jesus's mother, Mary Magdalene, Jesus's aunt, they are here gathered around. They and the disciple, probably John. If you remember, John opened the story of Jesus's ministry with the scene of Jesus and his mother, much like he now pulls us back to here with Mary standing with her son Jesus at the cross. That first scene had been a banquet, a wedding feast, when the wine had run out. It was almost a year ago we preached through that passage, so uh, dig deep back. Mary had urged Jesus to act, to do something. The party was about to fall apart, and it would be the humiliation of the groom who was hosting it. And he had explained to her in that moment that this wasn't his hour, that this wasn't that moment for him to act. He had said to her, woman, what is it to me? My hour has not yet come. And here we find Jesus at the end in what he had already described as his hour. Now, Jesus was a devout Jew, which meant he would have taken the idea of honoring parents extremely seriously. It was one of the highest commands for Jews. You would honor your father and mother, look after, particularly Mary, who seems to be widowed at this point. And so in a symbolic act, while he hangs on the cross, he hands over the stewardship, the care of his mother, to the disciple John, who was there as well. It's interesting because Jesus had brothers. We know this from the Gospels. We know it from later church history as well as James, who will write in the biblical texts. 
But it's interesting, it's John standing beneath the cross that Jesus entrusts with the responsibility of his own mother. Probably it's because of their connection and faith. Jesus' brothers were not following him at this time, weren't believers at this time, according to the Gospels. They would one day, probably after his resurrection, come to believe. But here, it's their shared faith in Jesus, Mary and John, that allows Jesus to say to John, behold your mother, and to say to his own mother, Behold your son. It's moving, but perhaps there's even more going on than you first realized. As John loves to do throughout his gospel, one of his favorite techniques is to have things have double meaning. Do you remember at the very beginning when Jesus realized that uh, Andrew was following him, the very beginning of his ministry, and he turned and he said, what is it you seek? (laughs) We recognize it's a very logical response to a guy following you, but in the context of the first words of Jesus in the gospel, John intends it to be something profoundly more important. What is it that you're looking for? Well, here, a similar kind of double meaning goes on with this phrase. He opens this image of exchanging his responsibility over to John by declaring first to his mother, woman, behold your son. When Mary had asked him to do that work in Cana at the wedding feast, he had said to her, woman, what is it to me? This is not my hour. This is not that moment that you think it is. But now as he hangs on the cross, he turns to his mother and says, woman, Behold your son. Jesus would then turn and say to John, Behold your mother. And so give context that what he meant was the exchanging of relationships, his now with John's responsibility. But in that first statement alone, how it must have struck Mary when he said it, Behold your son. He was drawing attention to him. John would become that son, but by the first statement, her attention, our attention, goes to Jesus hanging on the cross. This is that hour, that moment, so long alluded to. This is why he had come. This was his purpose. And he seems to be saying to his mother of all people, this is why I am your son. Behold, this is why I have come. This is the hour. Though you may not have understood it at Cana when you wanted to see the power, this is why I am here. Maybe also we should note the place of family, that Jesus' final act is the establishing of a new kind of family relationship, a giving that produces within Jean and Mary a new context of belonging. There's something about their shared relationship with Jesus that moves Jesus to place his own mother in the hands not of a brother, but of a fellow believer, a follower, a disciple, John. There is, by Jesus' giving of his mother here, a new kind of family. There is a family through Jesus that takes on a unique depth by Jesus himself establishing it. That even as Jesus dies, in all of the horrific detail, in all of the excruciating pain, in all of the humiliation, the nakedness, that what is on Jesus' mind is the giving of his mother into a new kind of family, John, a new kind of brother. It's this act, Jesus here on the cross, that makes that new family, this family of God, this adoption into a heavenly family, this belonging to one another as believers in Christ, as brother and sisters. It makes it possible because Jesus gives. It really is remarkable carries his own cross. 
He gives up his spirit. And in the middle of his painful death, he establishes a new family to care for those who are there before him. And we too find ourselves at the foot of that cross, coming in all of our sympathy and horror that the Savior of the world could be crucified and be crucified for our sins and finding in that moment him turning his attention to us and saying, behold your mother, behold your son, behold this new family, this new place of belonging that in my death I give to you. Jesus gives that we too might belong. He dies, and as he dies, he carries and looks out for and gives. This is not a man who has been stripped of his dignity, not a man who's been beaten down into submission, not a man who's been taught a lesson by the power of Rome. This is a true king, a king of kings, that even as he suffers, cares for those who belong to him. They may deny him, They may mock him in defeat, but don't be mistaken. Jesus has lost none of his authority. What he had predicted is true, and even as he dies, he remains in absolute control of things present and things to come. He gives, and he lays down his life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down by my own will, he says. He carries, and he declares to the world, behold, the reason that I have come. John assumes that we know all about the pain Jesus endured. But what he wants to make sure that you see in the events of the crucifixion, that Jesus is Savior, truth, and that Jesus is Lord, King of Kings. I want to offer you something really simple this morning. I said a few weeks ago as we moved in the events of Jesus' crucifixion, I wasn't going to try to be too clever or to offer you some life application that simplified it down to how to make things go better this next week when you're at work. But instead, I wanted to do what Jesus said. When I'm lifted up, I will draw him into me, lift Jesus up, and let his spirit draw our hearts to him. So the simple thing I want to do to say this morning is this. The cross is not the defeat of Jesus. By the power of his coming resurrection, we will soon see how he is vindicated. But even here, in his moment of suffering and loss, Jesus is who he says he is, is who the scriptures had long anticipated, and he dies as he said he would, but he does so giving, saving, establishing, caring, taking responsibility. He gives leads in all authority, Lord, King. One of the things I've wanted to show you over the last few weeks, particularly as we've moved through this mock trial, this sort of fake questioning and interrogation that Jesus was put through, is how oddly Jesus fit within the world around him, the current events of his day, the politics of his day, as I've described them. It is, after all, what got him killed, that everybody was a little uncomfortable with him because he disrupted the status quo in ways that didn't fit, there wasn't room for. And he was hung as a way of putting an end to all of it, that all of them must have gone home from the cross that day with Jesus proven dead by the Roman executioners, taken down and buried in the ground, how they all must have imagined it was done and over. Rome had spoken, its power was always final. The Jews had put to death the one who had risked their stability, the life that they had carved out. Jesus was once and for all finished. But what they didn't realize 
What John did was that more was going on than what they could see. More was going on than their way of conceptualizing power and death and control. It had created a world and a system that didn't have room for what it was Jesus was doing before them, before their own eyes to fulfill the very scriptures that they knew so well. This is what this death was all about. What appeared to be defeat and denial would turn out to be victory and a proclamation, a declamation to all of the world. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's to live with this kind of tension, this reality within a reality, that we are misunderstood by the world, that we call someone king who the world imagines crucified and done away with. To be like John, standing, the lone person in the crowd who recognizes that fulfills scripture, that fulfills scripture. Did you see what happened there, just as scripture had predicted? Do you see Jesus has done just what he said he would do? That so too we stand in our own world, which sees in the crucifixion nothing all that impressive. And we say, don't you realize what is happening here? What has been accomplished here? What this means? Paul picked up on this later on when he wrote to the church at Corinth. Many of them there had become believers, had believed in Jesus, considered themselves Christians. But the Corinthian church had accepted Jesus' story of death and resurrection. And increasingly as time went by grew interested in other things, deeper things, things that had more application, that were more respectable, received. As it was put in the Corinthians, things of deeper wisdom and deeper knowledge. They wanted talk that impressed people. They wanted polished speakers and people who were eloquent. And they wanted their friends and neighbors who were philosophers or those who were interested in grand ideas to be impressed by the way Christianity interacted with their thoughts in the world. And so Paul writes to them as they slowly move on from the cross to more deep things. Paul, as only Paul can do, says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Do you not hear there truth, authority, strength, and wisdom? Paul goes on to say, brothers and sisters, he turns and says, look at yourself. Remember, Paul's letter is probably being read in a congregation. Uh, A lot different than this, but not totally unlike this. People coming together for worship. And he says to them, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God shows the lowly things of this world and the despised things, that the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, whom has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to say the same thing to you this morning. Look around. Not many of us are kings or royalty. Not many of us are celebrities or highly influential in this world. Not many of us great philosophers or minds that our age turns to for wisdom. The world is not beating down the doors to get into this service, to be a part of what we're doing here. I don't know if you've noticed. But don't mistake what you have, what is in front of you. You are in on something, in on something that this world has for long struggled to recognize, that this world has mocked, imagined defeated, denied, stood in crowds around the cross and imagined defeat. But we, the small things of the world, have been specifically chosen by God to show the world its folly, just as the cross had done that what God had predicted is true, and that real power is at work in the things that the world imagines defeated, that more happens here when we gather together, churches and uninfluential believers all over the world, that we are in on something, a part of something, a participant in something, that the cross itself is the ultimate example of. We're going to close this morning by sharing communion. We normally do that on the First Sunday of each month, I pushed it off to last week for crucifixion, and then decided we're not going to get to the crucifixion last week either, so we've pushed it off to this week. But what this communion represents for us is that participation, a way of saying in the midst of this world who imagines what in the world is a small group of people who get together on a Sunday morning and eat a stale cracker and drink some old grape juice, how does this have any impact on the world? But for those who believe, we recognize it is a participation in the kingdom of God, that you are in on something that this world does not recognize, that you are a part of this family, that God, by the giving of Jesus, and Jesus, by the giving of his life, has made yours, that when you eat of his body and drink of his blood, you participate in the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, that you proclaim that it is true that he is king, that he is the salvation of this world. And so we participate like Jesus' disciples themselves. As Luke records it, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood.
If you've got your elements this morning, we're going to pray over them and take them as a participation, as our way of saying, it is true. You are king. And we willingly humble ourselves to be participants in it with you. Whatever foolishness it is, whatever weakness it appears to be to the world, we're in on it. We're participants in it. Because we sense in these elements, in this image of Christ on the cross, in his act of giving himself for us, a power and a true wisdom and a true authority, a king of kings, a lord of lords, Jesus Christ, savior of the world, and lord of our lives, his kingdom coming and still to come. Let's bless them and we'll take together. Heavenly Father, we humble our hearts this morning. We ask that you, by your spirit, would humble us as well, that you would give us a sense of what it is we have before us, that you would forgive us of imagining these are small things when they are the very things for which you gave your life, laid it down. That God, we don't have some advice for how to live or some way of trying to live better in this world, but we possess your power at work in this world. That your cross is the means by which you ended sin and overcame death and pushed back against the defeat and the denial of this world. God, how humbled we are by Paul's words to realize that we are not great people. We're not influential people or powerful people or rich people. There's no one here this morning that this world is desperate to know. But yet it's for us you gave your life. That you have called us. That you have invited us into your family. That we are those who are part of the family of God. That we receive from you your body and your blood, a new covenant. That we are yours by the promise of your life. And that you have promised us an eternity a resurrection to come, that you've promised us hope and healing and peace for an eternity to come, that everything is ours because of you. So I pray that as we take these elements and as we worship you by your spirit, as you said you would, would manifest it in our hearts, make it real to us. Make this cross not just something we believe, but something that is in us, changing us. Give us that sense of hope, even as this world despairs. Give us that sense of peace, even as this world is fearful and full of anxiety. Give us something by your spirit and by your gospel that sustains us, that fills us, that emboldens us in the midst of this world to realize that we are a part of the foolishness that shames the wise, a part of the smallness that sets straight what is great. That we are a part of your broken body and a part of your shed blood. And by your death, we are a part of your life and your resurrection to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray and that we receive these elements today.